You're listening to the First Corinthians When Immaturity Meets Worldliness series preached by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. First Corinthians chapter 16. First Corinthians 16 this morning. Maybe I'm feeling a little nostalgic this, this morning because we come to an end of the book of Corinthians. We've been here for some time now. I, I don't know how long, but it's been a long time. I think over a year and a half, at least. And we come to the close of this letter, and I, I think this week, just thinking about letters, I just had the idea of, of what we've sort of lost in our society today. We live in a world of Snapchats and tweets. Um, Instagram, of Facebook rants, that we don't really don't have to see people, we just rant on Facebook and hope someone likes our rant. And I think we've sort of lost the idea of the handwritten letter. How many folks this, this morning, you understand, I mean, you, you remember going to the mailbox anticipating a handwritten note. Can I see your hands? Good, an older congregation than I thought. All right. There's something about a, a handwritten letter. When I was 17 years old in the service, I, I'll never forget mail call. And you'd stand in line and you'd hope and pray that, that your name was called for mail call. And you'd hear Smith and Eberhardt and Jackson. And then to hear Dressler, like, I've got mail. You've got mail before You've Got Mail came out. And to look at the stack and to look in particular for one addressed letter. They were all sweet. They were all special. But, but that one letter, and you could tell by the handwriting where it came from. Why am I crying about that? It was from her. And, and you take the letter and you cherish the letter. And back in those days, um, if you were in love, you would smell the letter. Right? Because there was usually perfume. I, I re- smell is such a powerful thing. I, I remember the smell of that. It was Touche, I think, was the name. Touche, was that it? It was like 10 years ago. And then to read it and to reread it. And then, and then at the bottom of the page to have it say, I love you, counting down the days, can't wait to see you, and whatever pet name you might have there that I will not repeat. But there's something about a letter and the end of a letter. And we come to Paul, and this is the end of his letter. Chapter 16, a long letter. And Paul does something amazing as we read the last six verses. He signs it with his own hand. And he says some things that are are special. And my prayer this morning as we close this letter out, that, that we will get a glimpse into Paul as he signs it, as he, as he gives these last words and the, the last instructions, and that we could peer into to Paul's heart in particular about the church. The church. What the church is to look like. Uh, what ought to be happening within its walls what we ought to be like as a body of believers, 
how we should interact. And you'll see that Paul has very intense, strong feelings about the church, and they sort of just come through again as if they hadn't already in 16 verses at the end of this book. It has been said, to live above with the saints we love will be all bliss and glory. To live below with the saints we know, that's quite a different story. Because we're humans. And we have issues. And there's something glorious about this church that Paul writes about to remind us before we leave this place today that I hope will impact us in a powerful way. Let's read the last of the letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, starting at verse number 19. Paul says to this assembly of believers who were immature, who were worldly, who had real issues, he says, the churches of Asia salute you. It means greet you, all right? They're not giving the salute, any kind of salute. They are greeting them. And Paul says, I want you to know the churches of Asia, they greet you. Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord with the church that is in their house. And all the brethren greet you, greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation of me, Paul, with my own hand. And, and, and what happens usually in these days, you had an immensus or, or a secretary, and, and they would write the letter. But Paul now, toward the close, grabs the ink, and he's going to finish off these very last words, probably to show that it was truly him, to authenticate the letter, to show his authority. But there's something within Paul that's so important that he inks the last few sentences. And he says this, 22. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. Maranatha. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And so I just want to point out two thoughts about what Paul is saying here and then maybe look at his intentions at the end, and hopefully walk away, all of us, with a better understanding of the church, what the church means, what it's about, our role in the church, and where we ought to find our place, and how we ought to think about the church. It's all about the church. Christ died for the church. Christ loves the church. And it's, it's clear that Paul, as an apostle, loved the church. Do you love the church this morning? And I don't want you to raise your hand or even say anything. I want you to think about it. Do you love the church? And when I say church, I'm not saying, wow, the building is so impressive. The carpet is nice. The stage is unbelievable. I'm talking about the body of believers, the true church. What's your attitude and what's your role in this place? And so Paul first addresses these believers, and he says, the churches of Asia greet you. They, they greet you. And, and the idea here is that Christianity has just started. Paul is writing within 30 years of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and now the church is, is spreading, popping up all over the empire, all over. There are local assemblies everywhere. And, and Paul is reminding this congregation that they are not mere individuals in this little place of Corinth, that the church is, in fact, global. It is everywhere. And Paul says, I want you to know that the churches of Asia, they greet you. And, and there's this connectiveness 
um, and cooperation in the body of Christ. This has certainly happened to you, that, that you've been someplace and you met someone for the first time, and right away there's this spirit about them that you think, hmm, I wonder if they are believers. We took a missions trip last year to Guatemala. We took about 14 folks. And, and the flight from Detroit to Houston, we were, we were spread out in the plane, and we didn't sit next to each other. And I sat next to an older black woman, probably in her 60s. She was from Texas. And she was a grandma. And so as soon as I sat down, you know what grandparents do. Blah, 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 blah. My grandkids are geniuses. They're beautiful. They're all the pictures. And so I'm sitting there trying to keep my earplugs in and pulling them out. Excuse me. Okay. But there was something about her that was just, she had a sweet, sweet spirit. And so we were talking, and then she said, well, what are you, what are you doing? Where are you going? I said, going off to Guatemala. We've got a missions trip there. And she said, praise Jesus. That was my first clue that she was a Christian. <laughs> I'm kind of hard-headed like that. But even before that, I knew. I knew there was a spirit about her. There was something that, that said, there's a connection here. You know the same Jesus. We're part of the same family. And Paul is saying, listen, Corinth, understand, the churches, this is global. It's not just you. I think sometimes we have this provincial thinking in our heads that the only thing that matters is this place. It's our, it's our little church and what's happening here. That's not the case. We get the Elijah Syndrome that says, oh, Lord, I'm the only one left. I want to die. We're the only true believers left in the world. And God says, Elijah, first off, what are you doing here with this attitude? It's wrong. And by the way, there are 7,000 prophets that have not bent the knee to Baal. So Paul reminds these believers they're not alone. There is some type of encouragement in knowing that we're in this thing together, good or bad. Believe it or not, when I was a young man, um, I was called into the principal's office once or twice. Okay? Um, and, and it would work like this. I'd sit down, and the principal, Mr. Folger, would say, we know there are more guys involved. We want all of their names. And I know some of you are like, I'm not saying a word, but for me it was like, Give me a pen and paper. I'll tell you all of them. <laughs> all of them. And, and the reason was because there was something even about being in trouble with, well, these are my friends, and we're in trouble together. And there's a weird comfort to that, that I narked on them. But Paul says, listen, this thing is global. It's not just you. It's not just the church in Chatham. There's a body of believers out there and at any given time, the church is rejoicing, is experiencing revival, it is seeing God's blessings poured out upon it, and it is suffering and feeling opposition and being persecuted. This is the body of Christ, and it's global. And then he says in the same verse, Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord with the church that is in their house. And for, for many of us, I think we've heard the name Aquila and Priscilla before. Um, we, we saw them come up in Acts. We see them in Romans. We see them in, in 2 Timothy. We see them in Corinth. And just to refresh your memory about this couple, in about 49 or 50 uh, A.D., Claudius the emperor, emperor said, 
hey, no more, no more Jews in Rome. There's some disturbance going on, probably with Christianity and Judaism. He said, I'm kicking all of you out. And so he did. And all the Jews were expelled from Rome. These two individuals, husband and wife, were expelled as well. They were Jewish believers. They were wealthy. I mean wealthy. They end up in Corinth. And at Corinth, they meet up with Paul, who, they were tent makers, he was a tent maker, an instant connection with them. So much so that they become Paul's helpers. They finance his ministry. And when Paul then goes to Ephesus and stays there, you know who you find there? Aquila and Priscilla. And then when Paul is in Rome, again, you find them there ministering to him, and then eventually they're back in Ephesus again at the end of their lives. And Paul says to the church, listen, not only is it global, but I want you to know something. Aquila and Priscilla salute you as well. And when Paul views them, they were heroes for the faith. They were proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were discipling people. A matter of fact, Apollos was under their tutelage. The great expositor. They'd open their homes. They'd minister to Paul on numerous occasions. And for Paul, in his mind, these people were heroes. They were special. Now, you may have not noticed this, but I want you to notice this. Aquila is a man. That's a man's name. I know we don't use it much today. I don't know if you have any friends named Aquila. If you do, that's cool, I guess. Priscilla's a woman's name. You probably know some Priscilla's. Priscilla Presley. I know her, not personally, but I know of her. All right? And Paul never once says about this couple that, hey, Aquila is, is greeting you, and his little wifey is greeting you as well. Or, hey, the man of the place is Aquila, and Priscilla is just the little lady or the woman. He doesn't say that. A matter of fact, he never mentions it. And the reason I bring this up is because in our day and age, it's like, yeah, you know, Paul, it's, it's a man's world. And the church is, it's a man's world. And Paul hated women, and he was misogynistic and all these things. Listen, you've got to stop saying that, and the church has got to quit parroting that because it's not true. Here is a woman that Paul looks at, and he says, these two equally have risked their life for me, and I am indebted to them. No distinction. A matter of fact, here's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. He says, this is Paul, there's neither Jew nor Greek, Neither bond nor free, neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Jesus Christ. And we've got to stop this idea that somehow in the New Testament, Paul just hates women. He doesn't. He doesn't even mention that this woman is a woman. He sees her as a hero of the faith who has a role to play in Christianity. And it's not just her. If you doubt me, go look at Romans 16. As Paul closes that letter, you'll be amazed how many women are named there. And so this church is global, and this church is for both genders, men and women. And we have to understand that, and the the church of Corinth had to understand that. And then he says this in verse number 20, back in our text. He says, all the brethren greet you, and and again, the word brother there means brothers and sisters. It's just the way they wrote things. All the brothers and sisters greet you, and then he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay? Okay? Now listen, some of you folks, this was your life verse growing up. Teenagers in the youth group, 
hey, the Bible says greet one another with a holy kiss. Right? And, and you view this as some cool Christian pickup line, right? It's not, okay? It's not what it is. Teenagers, don't even try it. Don't pull that out of context. It's not what he's talking about, okay? It's a holy kiss. It's holy because God's people do it, but the kiss was a greeting. It was just a warm way to greet, especially in Judaism. If you met your family, you kissed them. If you met friends, you kissed them, maybe a peck, peck, right? Um, if you were reconciled back to one another after a conflict, you'd have a meal and you would kiss one another, right? We still see this, right, in Europe, in, in South America. Even some of our old ladies today still do this. You go to Hollywood, it's like, peck, peck. They tell me in Russia, some of the men kiss on the lips. Yeah, right? Thank God, not in Russia this morning. All right? He, he says there, listen, greet one another with a holy kiss. It is mutual fellowship. It is unity. It is reconciliation. It's a family. And he's reminding the church that when you come together, there should be such a, a spirit of love that regardless of your social background, your race, your nationality, your gender, whether slave or free, Roman patron or client, we are joined together in the body of Christ. And when we come together as believers, we greet one another warmly. We show the world that we love one another. Rich, poor, black, white, educated, uneducated. Intelligent, not so much. Quiet, shy, backwards, loud, obnoxious, loud. We greet each other in love, mutual fellowship, and unity. Within these walls, Paul reminds the believers, the church is global, right? It's both genders. And the fact is, when we greet each other, we greet each other in love. We do it the handshake, a hug, and we say, brother or sister, I love you. And the reason we can do that is not because we're all the same. There, there, there are very few people in this church that are the same. We do that because we have a bond in Jesus Christ that supersedes and transcends everything. There is a beauty in the church of Jesus Christ that can't be compared to any other place. Because it is the only place on the planet that you can come together from every different background, every different race, every different ethnic group, every social status, and come together and still love one another and be equal because we are in Christ. And we got to remember that, folks. If we had a tournament today, a basketball tournament, I was thinking about this this week, and, and it was a tournament for real money. I mean, like, it was the big times where this tournament was going on, and we had to field a team in this church for basketball. I'll tell you who I'd pick. I'd pick all of the Corentes, all of them, every one of them, even their grandkids. I'd pick all the Corentes. And then I'd probably pick, I'd probably pick Herb Gruenwigen and Nick Sikema just to stand up at six foot something and hold up their hands. And, and maybe some younger guys who are athletes. That's what I'd pick. Let me tell you who I wouldn't pick. I would not pick one dressler. Not one. We play a game in our kitchen with a folded-up napkin to make it into a basket. It is pathetic. It, it's pathetic. It's embarrassing. 
It's like, boom, off the wall, boom, nowhere near. I wouldn't pick a dressler. Raj, I love you, but I don't think I'd pick you for basketball. Back is not good. I wouldn't pick him. Betty Damon, I love you, but I'm not picking you for my basketball team. All right? She could probably play, but I wouldn't, right? Because I want to win. You know what God has done? That's, that's his team. He picks every one of them. And every one of them will win. This is the glory of the church. And Paul reminds the believers that, hey, when you come together, when the world looks into your place, there should be this mutual respect and love and unity. That, that's what the world should see. And Paul reminds them of this. They're together. They're all on the same team. So he lets them know they're not just mere individuals. They're part of this global church. And here's the second thing he does, and this is interesting. Look with me now, if you would, back in our text to verse number 21. He says, the salutation, the greeting of me, Paul, with my own hand. Again, on, this is Paul writing now with his own hand. Sosthenes, chapter 1, was probably the secretary here, wrote everything. He comes to the end, and Paul says, okay, wait a minute, Sos, give me the ink quill. I'm going to finish this off. I'm writing now to this church. This is me. This is Paul. You know me. I love you. I've given my life for you. Look at the next verse, the thing he says. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. Now, I know we don't use the word anathema too much. You, you might have heard it before. It literally means a ban, like a ban, excommunication, or to be cursed. And when Paul gets the pen in his hand, writing to the church of Corinth, he says, there's something else that you've got to know before I close this letter out. It's an intense warning. He says, if any man doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be cursed. And I know there's some folks who think, well, Paul is certainly talking about the outside world. I have to tell you, I don't think he is. He's writing to believers. And Paul said about the outside world, his own brothers, in the, the Jewish brothers, he said, I would rather go to hell and let them go to heaven if I could. I think this is Paul's last shot at a bunch of hardheads in the church who were not listening to what Paul was saying. Understanding the importance of the church and what's happening in the church, Paul says, hey, if, if you're not going to get this, if you're not going to love, if you're not going to obey, if you don't love the Lord, you better understand there's a curse for you. Say, I'm not buying it. That's okay. Romans 16, 17. This is not unusual for Paul. Look what he says. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have heard, and avoid them. That's Paul to Romans. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, he goes on again, verse 14. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he might be ashamed. He goes on again, First, no, Titus chapter 3, verse 10. A man that is a heretic who causes schisms or division in the church after the first or second admonition, reject that individual, verse 11, knowing that he which is such subverteth and sinneth being condemned of himself. And Paul's saying, hey, if there are people in the church that don't love the Lord, they're going to be cursed. Now listen, what does it mean to love the Lord? What, is, there, is there a gauge? Is there some meter that we look at? Is there uh, things that we do? 
Well, maybe we should ask Jesus what it means to love the Lord. John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. First John, the, 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 the writer of love says, for this is, the, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. And there were people in Corinth that, that were not loving Christ. You remember how the book started out? They elevated wisdom above the gospel. They had divisions in the church. They were elevating social status instead of function of servants. Uh, they were involved in sexuality, immoral sexuality that they weren't repenting of. They were suing one another. They were um, taking advantage of their liberty with brothers and sisters who were weak and didn't care, couldn't care less about them. They were coming to communion, and the rich were eating and getting drunk, and the poor were hungry. This church was messed up. And he says there's a curse for those who, by their actions, deviate from the gospel and refuse to obey the injunctions of this letter. That's what he says. And I really do believe that this is Paul's last attempt to say, hey, I'm, I'm signing off. But I want you to know something. <laughs> if you don't love the Lord in this church... There's a curse for you. And it's interesting, back in our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, in that verse where he says, anathema, he follows it by maranatha. And maybe you've heard that word. It's, it's a real interesting word. It's, it's Aramaic. And depending on where you split that word, between the A and the N, or the T and the H, or somewhere around there, it literally means um, the, our Lord come, or our Lord is coming. And it fits together. He says to this church, listen to me. You're playing games in the church. And if you're going to deviate from the gospel, there's a curse for you. By the way, the Lord is coming. I'm sure you've heard um, the song, Come on, everybody, get happy. Get ready for the judgment day. Have you heard that? It's like a, it's like a New Orleans kind of, I would sing it for you, but you wouldn't recognize it if I sang it for you. Come on, everybody, get happy, get ready for the judgment day. That kind of thing. You don't know it now? Dumbest song in the world. Get happy for the judgment day. Really? Can I tell you something? If you're lost, the judgment day will not be a day of happiness. It will be a day of weeping and regret. And for the believer... The coming of the Lord can be a sweet thing, but 1 John already told us that if we don't abide in him when he comes, some of us will be ashamed, 1 John 2, 28 through 3, 3. And Paul is saying here, listen, remember the importance of this body of believers. Remember the church. Love the Lord. Serve the Lord. The church is not a social club. It's not. The church is not part of some rec league. Or just something that we got to do and go in and out of. That was never God's intention. That was never God's plan. It's not the church. The church is a called-out assembly of blood-washed saints who slip and fall and fail, yes. But their goal is to truly glorify and honor Christ and build his kingdom. So Paul says, let me write something down. There's this intense warning for the church. And now verses 25, or 23 and 24. 
he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Again, he ends this way. He began, he began in grace, chapter 1. And then he says this, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And I think this is really important because I think we're going to see Paul's intentions of why he wrote these last few statements and really why he wrote the book. Do you know that this is the only letter, the extent letter that we have of Paul in all of the New Testament, that at the end of the letter, he assures the church in his benediction of his love for them. The, the only letter. He comes to the end of this and says, listen, I'm writing with my own hands. I'm going to do something I've never done before that we don't have record of before. I want you to know that my love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. Now let me ask you a question. Those of you who are still awake and still thinking, why do you think it was important for Paul to write that statement in this letter? Any ideas, Bruce? Yeah, the tone of the letter. I mean, this group took a beating for 16 chapters. And not only that, if you back up just a verse before that, let him be anathema. And Paul says, okay, before I finish, i got to tell you something. I really do love you. And for some of us, this is hard to believe. But Paul already said in chapter 4, verses 15 and 21, you have 10,000 instructors. You only have one spiritual father. I, I was there. I was in the beginning. By the Spirit of God, he used me to birth this church. I am your spiritual father. He says, I don't want to come with, to you with a rod and a bad attitude. I want to come with love and meekness. And Paul says to them, I want you to understand. Um, I want to assure you of my love as a father. His fatherly role of love required him to censure them when they were wrong. And our reproofs need to be read in light of that love for them. And this is where we're messed up in our society today. We think of correction as a lack of love. And it's not. It, it's interesting how in our family, our devotional time with our kids has, has sort of morphed over the years. Early on, we had the Bible storybook. We'd sit down after dinner, read through that with our kids, pray together. And then over time, what's happened is we, we find great, great devotional time, still around the dinner table at times, sometimes in our bedroom with everyone laying on our bed, often in our car driving, or sitting on the back porch when something comes up of a spiritual nature that we discuss. It really is a sweet time. It's an important time. And several years ago, I know I've said this before, you've, you, those who've been here long enough, you've heard this illustration over and over again. Please forgive me as I get older. I just keep on repeating myself. Um, but we were on our way when the boys were younger. All three of them were still at home on our way out to Wheatley. And while we're driving out, there was an issue that had come up with our oldest son that I, I didn't think he resolved it the right way. I, I thought it was really problematic. And believe it or not, my oldest son can be hard-headed. Now, I don't know where he gets that from, uh, so I'm having this conversation with him. He's not getting it. And I don't know if you know this or not, but I can become very passionate and animated every now and then. And so I, I could tell, as, as like, 
AJ, you know, ba 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 and, and we have a, a, a deal with my, my wife and I, because she knows me so well, that when I start to sort of elevate my blood pressure and my excitement and my passion, she taps my thigh. Like, they're there now, now. They're there now. <laughs> Settle down. That, that's what it means. Or if she's not next to me, I get a kick from across the table. All right? Yeah. And so she patted my leg. And I knew that I was getting worked up about this. Um, which, by the way, if I ever have to talk to you, have my wife come in because she'll pat my leg. And it'll be like, okay, I'll, I'll be nice to you. Um, and I just stopped. I said, AJ, do you know why I'm so passionate about this issue? And I looked up in the rearview mirror as I was driving, and I looked at his eyes, and he said, because you passionately love me. Correction is not the opposite of love. Indifference is. And if I don't care about you, if I couldn't care less about you, I don't need to talk to anything you, with you about anything. I couldn't care less. And the fact is, Paul says, I love you. I, I have to tell you that because you know I just beat you for 16 chapters. And as I'm closing in my own hands, I beat you one more time. But I love you as a father, and the reason I tell you these things is not because I hate you, but because I love you. Listen, there are conversations that we would rather not have. There are conversations in the body of Christ that we dread. But they must be done because love compels us to do it. Listen to me. There should be times, parents, that your kids cannot stand you. And when they don't, praise God, because you're doing something right. It's called parenting. Your kid's never upset with you and they get everything they want. You're a terrible parent. And you, not, you are not equipping them for life. You say, well, I love them. I love them too much because I, I want them to be happy. Aren't we all supposed to be happy? I don't want to rock the boat. I want peace in my house. I want them to think I'm a good guy or a good girl. Let me let you in on a little secret. Who you really love when you do that is yourself. Don't tell me how you love your kids. You love yourself. And you love what you're ignoring the situation does for you. It's not good. There are times with husbands and wives that there should be conversations that we hate to have, but we must have them. We must have them. Because nobody sees the whole picture. I was talking to my wife yesterday about this illustration. And, and we were in the car, and I said, hey, what was the deal? You told me this thing one time, and I don't know what I was doing wrong, but do you remember what I was doing wrong? Let me tell you what she said to me. I, I had spoken to her about something. And then she said something to me about an issue that I was having. And I'll tell you what it is. She said, Rick, there are times when I talk that you just cut in and interrupt me. Now, I can't imagine ever doing that, but, but that's what she said. And I, I remember where I was at when I said it. We were having coffee in the living room. Um, and she said it, and I got mad. Really mad. Because how dare she? I would never, ever do anything like that. And then she said this. I'm still getting the knife on my back. She said, you correct me, and, and you speak truth into my life all the time. And yet when I speak truth into your life, you become defensive. 
What do you say after that? You say sorry. <laughs> That's what you say. <laughs> but isn't that true? Haven't we been there? You don't want to have the conversation. You've got to have the conversation. It's love. In the body of Christ, we have to have these conversations. If we love people and we care for them, sometimes you've got to sit down and say, hey, listen, I love you. Now, now, here's the problem. Some of you folks, right away you're thinking, this is fantastic. Because now pastor has just given me a green light to go off on that person I've been watching for a couple of weeks and how they're raising their kids. And I'm going to lay into them right after the service. Okay, let me help you out. That's not what I'm talking about. Some of you folks, you think you're going to speak truth in someone's life that you don't even know who they are. You don't pray for them. You don't love them. You really don't love them. You see something that irritates you, and you're going to correct them. Don't do that. You're foolish. You build relationships. You develop trust. You show people that you love them. You start doing that, that nonsense, someone's going to punch you in the face. Might be me. All right? You don't do that stuff. I, a pastor of mine, when I was in church years ago, had this great saying. He said, um, if I smack your dog, your dog will either bite me or run away. But if I smack my dog, my dog will come back and lick my hand, and he'll be okay. Because my dog, and I don't have dogs, but my dog knows that I love him and I care for him, and I've invest, I feed him. Don't go smacking somebody else's dog. You're going to get bit, and you're foolish. I'm not giving you a green light to go out and, and at the door have a list of people that you're going to correct right now. I saw how you're raising your kid in the nursery. I saw what you did there. I thought, don't do that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about having relationships where we love people and care for them. And Paul says, my love to you all. My friend, this is what a church is. It is an assembly of called out believers from every walk of life. They come together. It's global, but certainly local. It's for men and women, for all of us. We have a role and a function to play. It's all for God's glory. And when the world looks into this place, they should see a church of people who really do love one another. And sometimes there's intense warning. We need it. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. But it's all for good and all for God's glory. And Paul says, I do this in Christ Jesus. So as we leave this morning, let me just give you three things to remember. Number one, we are not mere individuals. We are interdependent. Interdependent. Okay, the church of Jesus Christ knows nothing of a lone wolf or Han Solo or anybody else. We are connected by the blood of Christ. We are interdependent. No matter who you are in this church, you have a role, you have a function in this place. And the bottom line is you are as active or inactive as you want to be. I just don't feel connected to the church. Okay, let me ask you a question. What are you doing? Well, I come on Sunday, and I leave before anyone can shake my hand, but I don't know why I don't feel connected. Let me give you some advice. Before you run to your car, stop and say hi to somebody. Just try that. Maybe you'll start feeling connected. Maybe if you come to the services more than once, you'll feel connected. Maybe if you come to an activity or stay for a picnic or have someone out for coffee, you'll feel connected. The bottom line is, you are as active in the body of Christ as you want to be. You can blame everybody. You can talk about cliques. You can talk about all that stuff. The fact is, 
You're as active as you want to be. We are not individuals just in this place. We are a body of believers. Number two, there is a time of intense warning, reproof of instruction, our way of life. We all need them. We might not like it, but we need them. And there is no sense when you love people and you really love them to sugarcoat all the nonsense. Go in a spirit of love and humility. But understand, we all have blind spots, all of us. And most of us have no idea what they are. And we need someone from the outside who loves us enough to tell us this is an issue. We all need that. In our um, growth groups, we've been talking about uh, growing in grace and recovering redemption and really sanctification. And, and just, I think it was last week uh, during the study, Matt talked about people who have re- new relationships every three years. Because they have this group of friends, and after three years, they say, ah, there's too much drama with those people. I'm going to this group. And they go to that group, and then there's drama again. So they go to another group, and they leave that group because there's drama again. And it never dawns on them that part of the drama is them. We need to be corrected. And it might smart. It might hurt, especially from people you love and respect. But if they love you enough to tell you, thank God for it. And then our our intentions in this place must be that of love. That of love. Not ushy-gushy, feel-good, but real love. Love that cares for the person more than you care for yourself. That, That elevates their needs more than your feelings or how comfortable you are. But truly loves people enough to tell them the truth in a spirit of love and in a spirit of reconciliation to make things right. This is the church. Paul says this is important. Now to close this out, Corinthian believers, you need to know this. As we end 1 Corinthians this morning, we in Chatham-Kent need to know this as well. And by God's grace, may we leave this place with a better understanding of what the church is, what our role is, and how it should operate within these walls. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.